namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I'm very glad to be uh, back here for a Sunday afternoon talk. Uh, my apologies for missing the last one that I was scheduled to give, but I was uh, uh, summoned at very short notice to go to Thailand that weekend. Um, it was an invitation I couldn't refuse. So uh, anyway, that, uh, that all went uh, very smoothly, and I'm happy to be back on the schedule again. So the theme for this afternoon's talk is Less is More, Frugality, Generosity and Renunciation. So, uh, and I'll probably stick more on the frugality and renunciation side and then get to the generosity part uh, a bit later on. That's my plan anyway. So it also struck me um, just uh, this, uh, this morning how um, uh, if we say that... Uh, 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 our usual philosophy in life is more is better, but if less is more, then less is better. If you follow the logic. <laughs> also, uh, I was, uh, again, when I was reflecting on this topic, I, for some reason I was reminded of one of those uh, famous British epitaphs, which was a, a gravestone of somebody called Leslie Moore. Uh, and uh, the, the gravestone reads... Here lies the body of Leslie Moore. No Les, no more. <laughs> Whether that's truly somewhere here in the UK or not, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's there in my memory anyway. So, so it's supposed to be. Yeah. Well, this is a, 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 an important topic for our times and probably the kind of people who gather together at a Buddhist monastery on a Sunday afternoon uh, are not um, overly committed to uh, consumption. You know, we call the consumer society, as if we were just sort of a mouth with legs on, but uh, that, um, uh, that doesn't have to be the way that we, we see ourselves. But this is often the way that, uh, that society and, and our kind of value system that we are conditioned to operates so that uh, in sort of classical economics, uh, uh, as described in the very uh, uh, very wonderful little book called Buddhist Economics by uh, Venerable Payuto, uh, a Thai uh, philosopher and monk, he very succinctly describes that so classical economics is maximum consumption leads to maximum happiness. It's the sort of basic ethic of the consumer society. The more you consume, the happier you are. And uh, And so... That is, uh, uh, even though we say, well, I'm a Buddhist, I'm not like that. <laughs> uh, I think it's helpful to reflect if we, if we look around and we just uh, say, see our, our working life, our family life, the, the society we live in. There's a huge amount of our conditioning that is like that. The, the more that you've got, uh, the, the happier you, you should be, at least. And so there's an enormous amount of drive to get more. And it, maybe it's not more physical possessions, but at least yeah, more status or uh, more Facebook followers or you know, more, more Instagram followers, more, more likes, uh, and uh, as well as you know, the usual sort of more, more property, more money, uh, and uh, more approval and so forth. So that more is better is uh, a very strong ethic, I would suggest, even if we're not you know, overtly uh, materialistic, or at least we don't see ourselves that way, it can still be a very powerful uh, driving force. But that's, this is not a modern thing, in that sense of, of um, the uh, search for happiness through material possessions and through the, the sensory world. This has been part of our life in the, in the human realm since uh, many, many ages past. One one of the suttas that I'm uh, I'm very um, struck by, or I've often I often quote and I've often reflected upon, is called the, the Magandya Sutta in the Middle Length Discourses, and uh, the Buddha is talking with, with a layman, Magandya, 
And he's, by the, the flow of the, the conversation, Magandia is quite a successful, uh, wealthy uh, local uh, uh, person. And, um, and he can't get this, this, uh, uh, the, the, his mind around this idea of renunciation or what's wrong with sensual pleasure because life is full of all kinds of good stuff. So, you know, go out and enjoy it. And, and so that's um, a very powerful, simple, natural, straightforward principle for him. And I meet a, quite a number of people who are you know, of this mindset. Just a, a, a couple of months ago when I was in Thailand um, in June, I was uh, invited to meet a, a group of uh, uh, seven or eight people who were all heads of corporations. And they've been friends for, for 15, 20 years, and they have a, like, a little sort of philosophy dhamma uh, group together. And one of them who's a sort of... Um, uh, a very uh, wealthy tycoon, uh, powerful sort of captain of industry type. It, it was almost like talking to Margandia. It's like, well, what's wrong with 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 pleasure and having fun and having lots of things? You know, I like all this stuff. It's good. <laughs> I enjoy it. And uh, he wasn't arguing or wasn't sort of trying to find fault. But it was just it was very very similar tone to the dialogue between Margandia and and the Buddha. And, you know, and Magandia is saying so. So how, what could be wrong with this? You know, I'm uh, I'm hungry. I enjoy good food. I delicious. I eat delicious food, and yes, there's this this is good feeling. So what, what's wrong with that? Or or I, I have a nice big house. I have beautiful clothes. I have fine jewelry to wear. So I I like it. I enjoy it. I I I have it. So you know, what's uh, what's what's the problem with that? And so. Uh, <clears throat> As most of us know, again, the kind of people who gather for a, a Sunday afternoon at a Buddhist monastery, <laughs> most of those of us who, who are spending our weekend like this uh, have come across this um, this recognition that, well, yes, having the delicious food or the beautiful clothes or the lovely house and the, the, the wealth and status is one thing, but <laughs> somehow it, it uh, doesn't always have that zing to it. Sometimes it doesn't always lift the heart. And there's this this way that we keep having to raise the threshold that uh, you know you were satisfied with the the iPhone seven when that was the best that you could get, but now a seven. I mean, come on, you know, that's like. I mean, they have the uh, you know there's there's the at least a ten, and then there's the, the you know what's coming out. You know, whew, have you heard? You know, the the next one, the next, and the next, and the next. So this is a a kind of a. Um, uh, a feature of our minds and also our neurophysiology, the way our, our, our brains, our minds, our conditioning is built, is the threshold for what satisfies us. Uh, it continues to be raised. What was pleasing uh, a few years ago, now it doesn't quite hit the spot. Or what was, what was delightful before, the promise of something a little bit better, a little bit more, a little bit more. <laughs> Exciting! A few more features, another another uh, range of opportunities. You know, uh, uh, smaller, faster, better. <laughs> uh, with computers, it's smaller, faster, better. With other things, it's bigger, faster, better. But uh, we get pulled by that threshold and constantly being being raised, and we become dependent on that. And so, particularly if our resources are not infinite, then we uh, we find that in our search for satisfaction or for sense of completion or pleasure, uh, then is that sense of being caught by that promise of a, of a little bit more, a, a little bit extra, just just a bit more would be great. I, I've often quoted, um, and uh, I'll, I'll do a few quotes from a, a, one of the, the, the passages in here and from a, uh, an essay uh, I wrote for a book called Simplicity, where um, over 100 years ago, John D. Rockefeller who at that time was the, the, the richest man in the world, the uh, uh, Standard Oil uh, owner. And um, he was being interviewed by a, an American journalist. And he said, Mr. Rockefeller, you are the richest man in the world. Can I ask you, how much money is enough? And apparently Mr. Rockefeller kind of pondered for a moment and said, just a little bit more. <laughs> just a little bit more, then that'll be enough. <laughs> So in a way, he could see the dynamic, but also he was not free from it. So uh, in terms of so classical economics, then you have this maximum consumption equals maximum happiness. But then we, we have this uh, problem of, of uh, the threshold being raised all the time and habituation. We, we, uh, 
uh, eager to consume more, or quicker, faster, better. And uh, and so the the alternative, or what I'd like to talk about today, is more we what we would call the Buddhist economics side of it. And uh, again, in, in Venerable Paiuto's uh, little book, uh, Buddhist Economics, he says the Buddhist economics uh, approach is that uh, wise or moderate consumption leads to maximum well-being, rather than uh, the uh, the the amount that you consume, the knowing the 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 right amount, what is balanced or what is what is wise. And so, in in, in teachings like um, the Mangala Sutta. Uh, uh, the the discourse on the highest blessings. The Buddha talks about the quality of contentment. Con- contentment and gratitude is highly praised. Or in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on loving kindness, um, one who is contented and easily satisfied. So again, in the face of the consumer society and the push to sort of to improve yourself, to 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 get more, to be more, to have more, to to have your being validated by the stuff you've got or the uh, the qualifications you have, or the the status that you've uh, acquired, and and spe- uh, speaking of status, the um, the reason I had to go to Thailand was to get another title, so I got I got, I got an upgrade, you know. <laughs> this is, this is the uh, Amaro X Plus, you know. <laughs> so uh, so the um, so that. <clears throat> Uh, but uh, so in our worldly uh, attitude, then contentment um, can be like, oh, well, that's good enough, or well, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to have more, but this is all I've got, so okay, you know, uh, you know uh, I've only got this much, but yeah, okay, I can live with it. So again, I'm, uh, I realize this is a bit of a sweeping statement, and, uh, and uh, it's a generalization, so not everybody thinks this way, but it's common for us to, to think of, of contentment as being uh, just kind of half-hearted, like, okay, well, that's good enough, or I can get by with that, or, okay, well, that's, that's all I'm ever going to do with my life, but, you know, yes, that's good enough, it's all right. So there's a kind of switching off that happens. Is that familiar? There's a kind of numb, uh, being comfortably numb, in the, the words of the Pink Floyd. <laughs> Just sort of, just sort of switching off and bumbling through to, to again with the Pink Floyd to carry on in quiet desperation is the English way. Just to sort of uh, to bumble through to to get by and to be to be content with that. So that kind of contentment is not the same as the contentment that is meant by the the uh, the Pali word santuti. It's a, a far more profound and, uh, and liberating quality. It's not just a, a kind of complacency or a half-heartedness or just a getting comfortably numb or, or uncomfortably numb. <laughs> it's not just a, a switching off and then, oh well, that's, 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 this is as good as it's going to get. So I, yeah, I might as well, you know, just be, I'll be all right with this. And so that kind of uh, of contentment is is more like. Vibhava tanna, sort of switching off or uh, uh, a, a denying our, our relatedness to, the, to the, the living system, to the living world, and to our own living potential, the, the, the spiritual capacity, I would say, that we have as, uh, as human beings. So the quality of contentment in, uh, in uh, the Buddha's teaching, santuti, is a... Um, it's a, a profound ease, a sense of uh, of well-being. It's a, a, a if you like, a, a gladness of heart and a, a relaxation. It's not a, a switching off or a, or a disengagement. It's an, an engagement, but also a quality of profound ease or, or comfort. So then, uh, reflecting on the the, uh, uh, the this this area of things, uh, there's a. a very um, beautiful set of teachings that the Buddha gave to uh, Mahapajapati Gautami. So when he was uh, only a week old, uh, then uh, uh, the Bodhisattva's mother, Queen Mahamaya, passed away. And her sister, who was also married to the the Buddha's father, King Suddhodana, was called Mahapajapati Gautami. So there were two sisters married to uh, King Suddhodana. And um, so then... Uh, when when Queen Mahamaya passed away, then her sister Mahapajapati uh, took over, looking after the the raising of the the, the Bodhisattva. And uh, so 
she was uh, effectively the Buddha's uh, uh, foster mother and stepmother, and uh, well, not stepmother, but <laughs> other mother uh, and aunt. And so he was raised by her, and then she became uh, the very first of the bhikkhunis, the first nun in the, the community. And so there's a dialogue between the Buddha and her uh, sometime after she's entered into monastic life. So she'd, she'd lived for quite a few decades. She was already uh, into her 40s or 50s um, by this time. So she, and she'd lived as a queen as a, in the royal household for a long time. And so stepping down from that in order to live a, a monastic life was, was uh, after being habituated <laughs> to a, a comfortable and luxurious life it was quite challenging. So at a certain point, she came to the Buddha and asked for his advice of, well, uh, in the monastic life, how do I train myself? How do I uh, uh, really uh, uh, give myself uh, guidance in what is in accordance with the path and what is just according to my, my habits and preferences? Because I'm a middle-aged person. I've got a, a, life, a lifetime of, of conditioning, and, and I can't always trust my own mind. This is the kind of... Um, message behind her question. So, um, what what way can I discern what's in accordance with Dhamma and what is not? So then the Buddha gave her this um, very helpful list of eight qualities uh, that he said. Well, if uh, when when you have a doubt like this, when you are trying to figure out, okay, is this in accordance with the teaching, with the practice, or is it not? Then uh, uh, how can how can I decide? So he said, um, if it leads to, if what you're, uh, you're, you're looking at, if it leads to, to passion rather than dispassion, don't follow it. If it leads to dispassion, to coolness, then that, that's in accordance with Dhamma. If it leads to attachment, to grasping and clinging, uh, then don't follow it. If it leads to detachment, to non-grasping, non-clinging, uh, non-identification, non-ownership, then that's a, a good path to follow. If it leads to accumulation, like getting a lot of stuff and uh, having a lot of things, then that's not the path to follow. If it leads towards uh, a diminution, kind of reducing the thing, the number of things that you have, or the, the sense of, of ownership and things being possessed by you, possessiveness. If it leads to a lack of possessiveness, then that, that's the, the path to follow. If it leads to a fewness of wishes, and then when the Buddha explains that, um, <clears throat> he says, fewness of wishes is uh, to do with how you are regarded, like wanting to be seen in a particular way. If people, uh, if people praise you, you're okay with that. If people criticize you, you're okay with that. If people say, I'm really inspired by you, you're okay with that. If people say, uh, you're not very inspiring, <laughs> then you're okay with that. So in that respect, fewness of wishes is being at ease with how people see you. You're not, uh, you're not worried about what the world makes of you. So that's what fewness of wishes means in this respect. Uh, then uh, frugality, or not having to have a lot of stuff. Uh, you, can, you can be uh, content with the, the things that you have. Uh, and so when we go forth... As monastics, we, we undertake this, uh, this training uh, in the Siladara community, the bhikkhu community. We have a, a kind of deal that we strike with the, the preceptor as we, we, uh, as we go through that ceremony. And so you, you make the resolution to be content with um, whatever, with rag robes, whatever is um, uh, in terms of cloth that is is discarded or thrown away you're happy to make your robes out of uh, of rags you know, and just to cover your body and protect you from the weather uh, you are content with whatever food arrives in your bowl that uh, you, you don't make any choices or you're not particular about the food that uh, that you're offered you ha you're just happy to receive whatever people give you uh, you are content with uh, uh, any resting place, just to even live under the shade of a uh, of a tree, you you agree to be content with that standard, to live at the root of a tree, and with uh, whatever kind of basic medicines, uh, natural remedies are, are available, then you are you are content with that. So you you strike a deal. These are called the four requisites or, or the four supports, so that you you consciously and publicly agree to the lowest possible standard of living. Actually, in, in the Buddhist time, the most basic kind of medicine was fermented urine, which is extremely basic. 
free. <laughs> so uh, rag robes, uh, arms food, root of a tree, and fermented urine. So that, that's your, the standard of living that you agree to. So everything else is an improvement on that. But that's, that's the, uh, uh, say, in terms of, of frugality, that you, are, you make yourself uh, content with that. So that if you are, um, so the advice that the, the Buddha gave to, to uh, Gotami, then he said you know, to be, if what you're, uh, you're interested in leads to frugality, to a fewness of, of, uh, of needs, to, to being, be able to live, uh, say, simply, then that's in the direction of Dhamma. If you have a lot of stuff that you have to have, a lot of things, a particular kind of dwelling place, particular kind of building, or particular kind of, of um, uh, say, uh, clothing, or food, or shelter, or you know, medication, and so on, then if you're really kind of fussy and demanding with respect to all of that, then that's going against the, the Dhamma. Then um, uh, to be one who is, uh, say, contented, who is, um, say, being able to be uh, at ease with, uh, say, uh, in, in other respects, like if, there's, if things are very quiet, um, then you're, you're okay with that. If things are very noisy and busy, you're okay with that. Uh, you don't have to have the, the world arranged in a particular way. If it's sunny and bright, you're okay with that. If it's cold and rainy, you're okay with that. Um, obviously, you, uh, you have to look after your own medical needs and your, the, the, the state of the body, but you're not, uh, say, building your life around having particular sets of, con- of living conditions. So contentment, uh, then energy, if what you're interested in leads towards laziness and being kind of casual, indifferent, um, lax, then that's going against the direction of the Dhamma. If it leads towards uh, energy and being uh, uh, alert and, and involved, engaged, uh, energetic, then that's the uh, direction of Dhamma practice. And then uh, in, uh, if it leads towards uh, solitude uh, and to being, uh, say, by, uh, content by yourself and to, to, li- to being alone, then that's supportive of Dhamma practice. If you find you need to be around people all the time, you want to, to make contact and be with people, chat with people, engage with people, and you never want to be alone, then that's going against the, the direction of Dhamma. So these eight, uh, eight qualities, uh, detach- uh, uh, detachment, dispassion, uh, diminution, um, of possessions, uh, f- uh, freedom from wishes, frugality, contentment, energy, solitude. <laughs> I had to do my homework for this, so don't, don't, be, don't be too impressed. So um, those are the, the standards that he, he gave to, uh, to Mahapajapati Gautami, his, uh, his foster mother. And those qualities are also related to another set that um, he uh, of uh, qualities called the the eight thoughts of a great person. And so that they, and these two sets of teachings are close to each other in the the numerical discourses, the book of the eights. There's a lot of really good stuff in the book of the eights. And so uh, this was uh, Anuruddha, one of the enlightened disciples of the monks community. He, he was sitting meditating by himself, and pretty much the same list, a very similar list of qualities popped into his mind. And initially, there was only seven. <laughs> so uh, of that list, he had a fewness of wishes, energy, uh, contentment, and solitude. Uh, and then he also had uh, mindfulness and concentration um, uh, and, uh, and wisdom uh, as well uh, as that. And so then he went to the Buddha and said, yeah, there, uh, there are these seven qualities that came to my mind that I think are really important. Uh, these seem to be really significant uh, to me. And the Buddha said, yes, you're correct. Well done, Anuruddha. Anuruddha. And there's another one <laughs> that you can add to that, which is Nipapancha, which is a freedom from conceptual proliferation. Papancha means conceptual proliferation, the mind kind of chasing on and uh, one thought... Uh, Kind of running into another, into another, into another, into another, into another. It's called papancha. I'm sure a few of you are familiar with that process. I'm not reading anybody's mind. It's just uh, 
how we uh, we are in our society. So the Buddha added on nipa pancha, or freedom from conceptual contrivance or uh, complication, freedom from conceptual proliferation, as uh, as part of that. So these are all pointing towards a um, uh, a kind of um, say disengagement or a, a sense of uh, uh, disconnecting from a dependency an addiction to the sense world having to to have things a particular way uh, uh to 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 feel content to feel happy to feel at ease and then steering us towards a quality of of being able to be at ease in a variety of situation uh, situations and um uh, say mental states or social states you know, being with people being away from people and so on and it's in a way, strengthening that that quality of of um, adaptability within our own hearts. That we uh, obviously, again, we need. We, if you are diabetic, you need insulin. <laughs> you know, if uh, uh, if you haven't uh, uh, if you haven't uh, got a a, a a a lot of clothing and it's sort of twenty degrees below freezing, if you go outside, you're going to feel cold. So put some more layers on. You know, so. Uh, again, we're not we're not trying to be foolish. We're we're working with the conditions of life as we find them. But what it's talking about is that strength of attitude, a, a robustness, a sense of of uh, not having to have things a particular way so that we feel uh, we feel at ease or we life is good. We're not in a state of distress because of not having things the way that I like it or that uh, the way I, I think it should be. So there's a, a um, uh, uh, and I, I hope people can can sort of relate to that. That this is where we have the basis of frugality or renunciation. It's not about um, uh, being in a state of lack. So when we use the word renunciation in English, it generally means a sense of of dim, of like going without or kind of gritting your teeth and that, okay, I'm going to renounce that, and then you're kind of waiting for that period of renunciation to be over, so then you can kind of treat yourself, <laughs> and uh, and so you're kind of you're you're kind of bearing with it, so that it, uh, but uh, so there's a kind of gritting your teeth, and it's a kind of strength, but you're feeling a sense of lack or you're diminished. You're you're not fully uh, uh, who you are. You're kind of uh, bearing that. Um, that sense of of something missing with strength, but it, there, there's that uh, uh, sense of incompleteness with it. So what we, this is talking about is that renunciation in uh, in the Buddhist practice is more to do with uh, getting free of a lot of addictions: addiction to comfort, addiction to social approval, addiction to particular kinds of foods, particular. Uh, clothing or uh, uh, different situations. So just like if you've been addicted to alcohol or sugar or or um, to uh, 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 say nicotine or uh, those kind of things, when you're free of that addiction, there's a oh, this is great. You know, you're not always wanting a cigarette or you're not hankering for a drink. You can you can be around that and it's and it's no no bother. Oh. That's what renunciation is about. Nekama is really about that freeing the heart from its uh, dependencies on different aspects of the sense world. So the Buddha recognizes we need to eat, <laughs> we need clothing, we need some shelter, and the body gets sick, so we need to, to treat illnesses. But uh, we, uh, so we recognize those areas of our life. They need to be looked after, they need to be attended to. But the more that we can free the heart from dependencies, then the uh, then the greater there is a, a, a capacity to not just adapt to situations, but in a way to wake up to the nature of the heart itself, which is uh, you know what I'll, I'll go on to in, in a minute. So there's a a, 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 a French philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, who I believe lived in the 17th century. See, any French? Ajahn Sundra, Pascal, Blaise Pascal, 16 something or other? Somewhere back there. Anyway, so one of uh, um, Mr. Monsieur Pascal's uh, great bon mot was um, 
said, uh, all of the problems of the world arise from, a, from people not being able to sit quietly in a room by themselves. That's kind of it, really, isn't it? <laughs> All the problems of the world arise from people not being able to sit quietly by themselves in a room. Yeah. <laughs> if we could just sit by ourselves and be content, just to be with our own mind, uh, in a room. <sighs> but because we, it's, we can't, we have to get out and do things and get something and be someone and engage and do and have and... Uh, because of needing to justify ourselves or entertain ourselves or just feel like something's happening or something to, to chase after or something to be afraid of or something to fight with, something, just so that we are feeding our sense of, of existence. And that's what gets us out of the room and gets us busy and then uh, the, all of the problems of the world uh, uh, tend to arise from that. I, I agree there are many, many, many other problems of the world <laughs> that... Uh, Famine and uh, poor water supplies, uh, uh, oppression of various kinds. But I also feel uh, all of those uh, very practical issues, not notwithstanding, that uh, the observation of Pascal's is, is very significant. It's it's really um, something to reflect upon, and that the more that we can qu find that sense of inner completeness, that sense of inner. Uh, adaptability, robustness, that we don't need a lot of stuff in order to, to make us happy, then, then from the outside it looks like renunciation, like we're giving up uh, you know, all these kind of important things, possessions and status and, and money and uh, 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 fancy clothing and so on. But inside it's not, uh, it's not uh, there's no sense of being diminished, there's no sense of lack, there's more a sense of, ah, whew, Thank goodness I don't have to carry that addiction around. It's like going on holiday with with a, a lot of extra luggage. You know, you got sort of five five suitcases to negotiate with. You know, I've got to have this, got to have that, got to have this, got to have that. And then, uh, why am I carrying all this stuff around? And there's an interesting story. Uh, uh, if any of you have read uh, Ajahn Jayasaro's um, biography uh, of Lumpur Cha, it describes the, the very first time that the young uh, venerable uh, Bhikkhu Cha went on Tudong when he was about seven or eight reigns. He'd been a, a monk for seven or eight reigns and he, he went off wandering through the countryside and he, uh, he said he had a lot of attachments and he uh, was particularly focused on, on, on certain food uh, <laughs> issues and uh, things that he thought he needed. And... If, I rem if I'm remembering the story correctly, he actually took a, a pestle and mortar with him you know, to carry through the country. It's like a stone pestle and you know, a mortar, uh, which is uh, quite heavy. <laughs> so it describes how as he starts to make his journey uh, through the countryside, like, oh, this is really heavy. You know, yeah, I like my chili to be pounded up, but oh, this, is, this is really hard work. <laughs> so then the, the pestle and mortar, this kind of stone... You know, several kilos of pestle and mortar got left behind along the way and he's sort of slowly shedding more and more stuff as he realizes I've got to carry all of this <laughs> if I want this around I've got to carry it and so slowly but surely more and more stuff got, got shed along the way there's another story from the suttas that relates to this, this same area a, a relative of the Buddhas um, called Badiya uh, who was uh, after the, the Buddha had left the palace and taken up the monastic life, then there was a number, of, uh, and after his father, King Sadodana, had, had passed away, there was another, uh, a few other, um, say, of his relatives who took over the, the rulership uh, of the Sakyans. And at one point, uh, one of his relatives called Badia became the, the king or the, the ruler of the Sakyans. And... Um, uh, but he, he, so he, he ruled the Sakyan people for a certain amount of time. And then uh, after a few years, he came to the Buddha and said, you know, please, uh, Venerable Sir, can I join the monastery? <laughs> you know, I've had enough of the, the, the life in the royal palace, and, and I really would like to become a monk. And so this was quite a big thing, like, like uh, the, the Buddha's uh, foster mother, Queen Mahamaya, stepping down and becoming a nun. So Badia stepping down from being the ruler, having been the monarch uh, of the Sakyans to step down and become a, you know, a junior monk um, in, the, in the monastery was quite a big deal. 
And so uh, a few months after he'd shaved his head, put on the robes and, uh, and was living in the, the monastery, then some of the other monks noticed that Badia was kind of walking around the mon monastery saying, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. And he, he kind of had this uh, sort of stupid grin on his face and it looked slightly glazed and they thought, oh, wow, he's really lost it. Badia, you know, Badia, he's kind of, uh, he, he's... Uh, Miss, missing his life in the in the palace so much, he's sort of hallucinating the all of the the girls from his harem and the the beautiful food and the the fine clothes and the the uh, all of the palace entertainments and he's just kind of lost in this dream world, you know, poor monk, you know, and he's just every day he's like this, oh what bliss, oh what bliss, oh what bliss, and so they're quite worried about him and and uh, and it, it seems to be a, a fixed. Feature. So then, some of them go to the Buddha and say, "You know, we're we're really worried about uh, Venerable Badia. You know, he seems really kind of lost in this dream world. I think, you know, it's, he's remembering his life in the palace with his uh, his uh, harem of court women and the the luxuries of his uh, clothing and entertainments and food and the kind of comfortable bed and the and the uh, the kind of luxurious life of the palace." So. Venerable Sir, you know, could you have a word with him? I think we think he needs help. We need we need we need an intervention here, as we would say nowadays. So then the Buddha said, "Oh, well, invite him to come and see me." So then Badia comes along, and the Buddha says, "So Badia, is it true that you're walking around the monastery saying, oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss!'" And he said, "Yeah, that's right. That's true. Absolutely true." And and the Buddha said, "Well, what, what's the reason? Uh, why are you walking around the monastery with this?" This big smile on your face saying, Oh, what bliss! Oh, what bliss! And then Badia says, Well, when I was the ruler of the Sakyans, I had guards posted by my throne. I had guards posted on the inside of the, uh, the door of the throne room, guards posted on the outside of the door of the throne room. I had guards posted on the, the uh, yeah, outside of the, the palace buildings. I had guards inside the city walls. I had guards outside the city walls. And all the time, I was still afraid. <laughs> Afraid I'm going to be assassinated, I'm going to be attacked. Every mouthful of food I have, I think I'm going to be poisoned. Uh, I have all these uh, affairs of state, all the different countries that, that the Sakya kingdom borders with, uh, the, the, the Kolians and the Magadans and the people from, even the problems from people from, uh, uh, from the, uh, from Vangsa and Uttaraku and the, you know, all these kind of politicians coming at me and demanding this and wanting that and all these trade deals I'm supposed to be making. And, and so my life was just this uh, fear and pressure and anxiety. And now I have my robes, I have my bowl. I go out and walk through the village uh, with my bowl in the morning. People put some food in my bowl. I walk back into the monastery. I sit and eat my food. I go back to my kuti. I, no one's going to poison me. No one's going to attack me. I don't have to make any trade deals. No one's asking me to solve their problems. And that is why I'm saying, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss, oh, what bliss. Yeah. That's the reason why. So I'm not kind of advertising monastic life for everybody, I'm sure. <laughs> Many of you have lots of uh, commitments and uh, appropriately um, say, uh, I'm not trying to break up any marriages or businesses or or cause you to sell your property. But what this is pointing to is why we use renunciation. So, and also in our tradition, we're called the forest tradition or the Dutanga tradition. And so Dutanga is these ascetic practices or renunciate practices, like eating uh, only, uh, uh, say, the, the kind of practice you can take of just eating one time a day, eating all of your food from one bowl, um, uh, the practice of uh, living at the root of a tree, or the practice of just using the uh, only one set of, uh, of uh, three robes, uh, the um, practice of not lying down to sleep at night, and these kind of uh, of, uh, of things, or the uh, wa uh, walking through the countryside and just uh, living on the uh, the arms of uh, people that uh, say put food in your bowl in the village and not accepting food that's come to brought to the monastery and given there and so on. There's 13 of these uh, allowed Dutanga practices. So the, our tradition, our forest monastery tradition is called the Dutanga or the Tudong tradition. And we, we use these kind of practices uh, specifically to help, uh, uh, in a sense, to wake up 
that quality of inner adaptability, that inner completeness. So, and to strengthen that lack of dependency on particular kinds of food, particular kinds of shelter, particular kinds of sleeping arrangements, particular uh, kinds of, of medicine and so forth, so that you are uh, training yourself to be at ease in, in all situations. And so the forest tradition kind of cranks it up a little bit from the, the basic Vinaya standard, the basic monastic rule to sort of raise the, <laughs> raise the, uh, the stakes a little bit, so that, uh, but not out of a, 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 a um, uh, say, a, a wish to, to torture yourself or uh, to, to uh, just out of uh, kind of blind belief, but to, in a sense, uh, help the heart to awaken to its own natural intrinsic completeness. There's an interesting little set of five qualities, another list. <laughs> so the, the Buddha said there's, there's five reasons why members of the monastic community undertake the Dutanga practices, these ascetic practices. First one is the, the belief that you're burning up bad karma, that if you just eat one time a day or you don't lie down to sleep or you, you just wear the, um, the rag robes uh, or you just live at the root of a tree and so on, that you're intrinsically burning up bad karma by doing that. Reason number one. Reason number two, that you think that you're making good karma by doing that. Reason number three, everybody, everybody else is doing it, <laughs> so you think that you should too, because <laughs> you don't want to look bad yeah, amongst your friends. Reason number four is to impress the lay community, because you notice the ones who are the kind of really tough ascetics get more offerings than the, uh, the ones who are a bit more kind of casual and uh, uh, open to having uh, yeah, more, a bit more comfort and luxury. So to, to score points with the lay community. And the fifth one is for the sake of simplicity, to, to develop contentment and fewness of needs. And the Buddha said, out of these five, only number five. <laughs> That's the only worthwhile reason for undertaking the Dutangas. Not to burn out bad karma, not to make good karma, not just to fit in with the group, not to impress the lay community, uh, but only for the sake of developing this kind of inner adaptability, this inner uh, say robustness, this inner uh, completeness. So that's the 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 foundation of our uh, of our tradition is uh, to for, is for the sake of simplicity. Also, uh, and it's kind of interesting that sometimes I speak as having been this way myself. You can take simplicity and get really attached to it. So on the one level, you're kind of doing without, but you're actually accumulating. <laughs> You understand what I mean? You're kind of doing all this stuff. And, and many years ago, when I, I was living here in the 80s, um, I had so many ascetic practices going. Yeah, I, I hadn't laid down to sleep for over three years. I, was, uh, I never sat on a, on a zafu. I always sat flat on the, on the cushion. Uh, I only it was strictly one meal a day. Uh, all kinds of stuff. And I, by the end of 1980. Six coming up to the winter retreat of nine, uh, January of 1987, I just felt like one of those those poor tortured geese that was, was having being stuffed to make foie gras. Like, kind of, but I was I was stuffed, filled with ascetic practices. It was a weird feeling. It's like I'm doing all this stuff, you know. I was kind of very strict with the. I was a kind of super strict vegetarian. And there was all kinds of things I, I would eat, I wouldn't eat. And in those days, we didn't help ourselves to food off the server. We just the food was that lay community would line up behind the servery and put food into our bowls. And so I was kind of picking around, and this is my kind of don't eat section of my bowl, and this is the can eat section of my bowl. And so I got to the end of about 1986. And uh, uh, so this is, and I, I remember going to Lumpur Sumato and saying, saying, uh, Lumpur, um, uh, I've decided to, to give up all of my ascetic practices. And I've mentioned this many times in different, many times in different Dhamma talks. And, and I thought he was going to say, oh, well, never mind, you know, you've been doing a good job, lad, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I understand you probably need a bit of a break. And, yeah, it must be a bit exhausting doing all this stuff. But, you know, well done, well done, yeah. Maybe, maybe you can pick them up again later. Unconsciously, I thought he was going to say something like that. Instead, he said, at last! <laughs> With, and that, that's, the, that's the mild... <laughs> version of it. It was the, 
there's a kind of full body, you know, about time, you know. So, oh, so he was kind of waiting for me to see that I was carrying around this mass of asceticism, if you understand, like all this stuff I was doing. So on one, on the one level, you kind of, you're following the instructions to Mahapajapati, Mahapajapati Gautami, yeah? and it's all about this, and you're going with that, not doing this, not doing that, not doing this, not doing that. But it's all this accumulation, <laughs> but of a different kind. And I have a very clear memory of one particular day Again, back in the old days, the sangha we all, we all used to eat in here. The the uh, the nuns would sit down this side of the hall, and the monks would sit down this side, this side of the hall. Lumpur Sumedha would sit in the middle, and so um, uh, on that that occasion, I I, I was um, sitting next to him, and uh, somebody had uh, offered him this this very large sort of goopy Danish pastry, that sort of creme patissière and uh, strawberry jam and this kind of glistening thing. And I uh, would, uh, and so Lumpur put that in the lid of his armor bowl and passed it to me uh, and said, this is for you. And I, and I immediately took it and passed it on to the next monk. And he kind of said, no, no. <laughs> Again, I was kind of like, everybody's there. So. And he said, I want you to have it. And there was a sort of, but you know, but I'm, I'm the ascetic. I don't, I don't, I don't eat things that are delicious. And there was this kind of transmission outside the spoken word, like Amaro. I want you to have it. So, being a, a disciple of my my beloved teacher. Right. <laughs> this, is, this is a teaching. Okay, take the pastry. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was delicious. But uh, there was that, so that attachment to ascetic, asceticism or frugality or diminution is actually an accumulation. It's actually a, a stuff that we're carrying around. So part of the ascetic principle is when there's abundance, make use of abundance. Don't, don't be shy of it. Don't, don't be ashamed of it. Again, there's a very interesting uh, exchange uh, between Ananda and King Udena. So King Udena was the king of Vangsa in Kosumbi, and he had a kind of ambivalent relationship with the Buddha. Sometimes he was a great devotee of the Buddha and praised him and admired him. Sometimes he was very critical and upset and irritated by the Buddha. So he was sort of hot and cold. And um, at a certain point... Uh, he was feeling quite positive towards the Buddha, and so he allowed the Buddha and his uh, disciples to come and teach in the monastery. So on this particular occasion, Ananda had come to give a, a Dhamma talk to Queen Magandhya and uh, the women of the, of the court. Uh, uh, sorry, Queen Samavati and uh, uh, Magandhya and uh, the, uh, the women of, of the court. And uh, they were so inspired by uh, Ananda uh, they, they they took the the the, uh, the cloths that they had and the clothes they were, the cloth they were sort of the shawls they were wearing and, and donated this all this cloth to Ananda. So uh, at the end of his dhamma talk, they're so inspired. So he's got this great pile of of material uh, in front of him, and so at that point, King Udena shows up, and he sees you know his his queens, Queen Samavati, Magandhya, and uh, all of the the uh, court ladies. Uh, in a, uh, have, have given over their, their kind of wraps and all sitting in front of the monk. He says, what's going on here? You know, in the language of his, <laughs> his country. Hey, what's going on here? What's, what's happening? And uh, so he's, he's kind of surprised and shocked and like, you know, what is this? And there's this massive pile of cloth in front of, of, uh, of uh, Ananda. And he says, what are you going to do with all this? You're going to open a shop? You're going into the haberdashery business? You know? Uh, what's all this for? And uh, so he's kind of upset and angry and finding fault. And uh, and so Ananda says, well, you know, the, these good people have been inspired by this Dhamma talk. They wanted to offer what they had, so they they had these shawls, and so they've, they've uh, undertaken to offer these. Well, what are you going to do with all this? this is, are you going to wear it all? You know, you'll, you know, it, you'll look pretty stupid with all that on you. He said, no, I'll... We'll take you back to the monastery, and then we'll we'll uh, use it to make robes out of. So, but when the robes wear out, what what will you use them for? Well, when the robes wear out, then we we put them up in the uh, in the roost uh, of the kutis to stop the 
the, the the thatch from breaking up and falling down, or when the when the uh, the ceiling coverings are, are worn out, what, what would you use? Well, then we take that we take them and then we we uh, tear them up and we use them for foot wiping cloths. Well, when the foot when the foot wiping cloths are, are worn out, what do you use them for? Well, we 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 take them and then we kind of pound them up with a bit of with, with a bit of clay and then we we use them to to pack the cracks in the in the walls. So that's the short version. It's actually about 12 or 14 different <laughs> things that Ananda comes up with. And then he says, then Udena says, okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, you know, you, you guys, you, you, uh, you make use of the stuff that you're given and you don't, you're not casual, you're not extravagant, you don't just throw things away. So, uh, so part of frugality or part of simplicity is if there is abundance and you're given something pleasant or beautiful, luxurious or, you know, delicious thing, then if it's appropriate to the, to the time and the place, the situation, then it's quite okay to accept it. In the, again, in the Buddha's time, uh, um, Visaka, uh, one of his great lay disciples, built this seven-story, uh, seven-story building, which is huge, kind of amazing structure for that period of time, called the, the seven-story, uh, mansion, uh, and, uh, offered it to the Buddha. And so people said, this, how can, you're supposed to be ascetic forest monks, you know, how can you live in this seven-story building? This is outrageous. This is ridiculous. And then the Buddha said, well, the, the monks who stay in this building, none of them see it as being anything more than a roof over their head for the night. They don't, they're not possessive towards it. They look after it. Uh, they take care of it in a good way, and then they move on, and it's uh, available for others to come and stay here. So their, their use of it is blameless. So what these, uh, these principles are pointing to is that if we learn how to use... Uh, to be adaptable, then if there's you know, rags, you know, arms food, you know, the, the foot of a tree and fermented urine to, to live on, then you're, you realize that's okay. It's kind of, it's kind of simple and rough, but yeah, okay. No complaints. And if it's a palace or it's a luxurious food and uh, comfortable clothes and uh, here at Amravati nowadays, you know, life is pretty comfortable, I would say. But. At least on the, the physical front, but uh, it's a it's the attitude towards it that is the important thing. So the uh, the the root of simplicity is really the Dhamma itself, uh, and when the mind is awake to its own nature, then it doesn't lack anything because it really the the mind is Dhamma. The mind is not a person. You know, the the mind is Dhamma itself. It's that it's the the very fabric uh, of nature itself the mind is dhamma it's not a person it might seem like a person but every aspect of the mind is is dhamma and when the the dumb when the mind is awake to its own nature then just as the dhamma doesn't need anything to sustain itself it, it's it's that reality so we find our heart doesn't need anything in order to sustain itself we like to take the next breath and have a bit more oxygen. Yes, <laughs> when the belly is growling, then the, to have some food, it's pleasant. But we are uh, we're quite okay with uh, with uh, things uh, as they are and ready to adapt. And at the end of our life, when the breath goes out and doesn't come back in again, then I would say there's there's no sense of anything lacking either. Again, to quote another sutta in this respect, though that I, I refer to very often. It's called the Upposita Sutta. Again, it's the Book of the Eights in the uh, numerical discourses. So the, the Sutta to Mahapajapati is the Book of the Eights, Sutta number 53. The one to Anuruddha is Book of the Eights, Sutta number 30. And then the Upposita Sutta is Sutta 41. And so then the, the Buddha talks about the, his uh, formulation of the eight precepts. Which is the the five precepts with the with four of them being uh, renunciant precepts. So uh, he says, uh, and the basis for the eight precepts is the natural conduct of the enlightened mind. And he says, uh, throughout their, their lives, from the time of enlightenment until uh, the passing away of the body, an arahant is incapable of taking life. They never deliberately take the life of another living being. Uh, wouldn't it be a useful thing for the lay community one day a week? 
to refrain from taking life, then they will live as the Arahants do, and that will be for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. Uh, from the time of enlightenment until they pass away, uh, and uh, the enlightened ones never take what's not given. They never engage in any kind of sexual activity. They never speak any untruth. They never consume intoxicants. They only eat in one part of the day. They avoid uh, entertainments and distraction and uh, decoration. And they choose a, 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 a simple sleeping place. Uh, uh, so the basis of the eight precepts is the natural conduct of the enlightened mind. So that uh, uh, then what you're doing by taking on those precepts, and so what we're doing by taking on the, the standard of frugality or simplicity, is that you're uh, setting the conditions in favor of you waking up to that aspect of your own heart, your own being, that fundamental nature of this, this heart, this mind, which is the Dhamma itself, which doesn't need anything to sustain it, which doesn't need to be seen in any particular way, it doesn't need to be judged in any particular way. If it's praised, it's okay. If it's criticized, it's okay. Uh, somebody approves, okay. Somebody disapproves, okay. And not in a stupid way of just sort of switching off saying, I don't care what the world thinks, all right, yeah. Which is like kind of going, as I was saying at the beginning of this talk, kind of going numb or switching off. Rather, it's like, well, um, this is the way it is. Somebody says, yay, fantastic. Someone says, I don't like it. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's up to you. So there's an achievement, but uh, your own happiness, your own sense of completeness and fullness is not dependent on that. And it's just to say a couple of things about generosity then. So generosity is, in a way, um, that readiness to share what you have, what you are. So we, when we talk about generosity, often we think of, uh, say, what we call material offerings, amisadana. Uh, so then that's being ready to share the things that you have. Um, so again, it's renouncing that sense of me first, or more for me, like, I got mine, Jack, as they say. Yeah, yeah. I'm all right, Jack, I've got mine. Uh, that... Uh, it's uh, the mind that doesn't go that way, but rather through that attunement to, to the world of people and, and the living beings, there's the, well, yeah, technically I've got this, but why shouldn't I share it? Why, others are hungry too. Others have needs too. Uh, why should I hang on to this for me? Uh, yesterday I was telling this uh, little story about how one of the uh, Western monks on, on uh, Tudong in, uh, in Thailand, going through this poor village, yeah, and Westerners were a very, very, very rare sight back in the 1970s in northeast Thailand. And some uh, wealthy local villager offered this monk a Pepsi, and he didn't really want that to. to he didn't uh, didn't need it. He was wasn't thirsty, and so there was a little village kid nearby, and and so he um, uh, he gave this bottle of Pepsi to this village girl, and. Uh, that was like kind of major riches. Like you know, this this kid would uh, maybe have have only been given that, uh, you know, something like a bottle of Pepsi, you know, once or twice in her life. And he was so amazed because she immediately started looking for her friends to share it with. And then he said, "Oh, don't you want to have it for yourself?" And she said, "He said that she gave him this extraordinary look, like, huh, what? Like it was the weirdest thought for her." that she would just have it all for herself. Where for him, that was like, wow, <laughs> as a kid, oh, I, look what I got, you know, and then I'm going to run away and have it all for me. But he was so struck, it was one of the most powerful things that happened to him on that, that journey, was that her mind immediately went to sharing. So in terms of generosity, it's that uh, laying aside that sense of, uh, of me first, but rather uh, that listening to that same kind of uh, quality of the heart, both the, you know, the quality that, of the heart in its own nature that doesn't need anything, but is also ready to share, uh, to, to give, to not, to not own or not to, not to be possessive. And, uh, and it's not just a matter of material things, but uh, again, as I was uh, mentioning yesterday in the little talk yesterday afternoon I gave, that often even more precious than giving material things is giving our time, giving our attention, and, that, uh, and sometimes that, that's harder. 
that uh, it's more difficult to do than just writing a check <laughs> to actually pay attention <laughs> to to really be available for for somebody to be caring is uh, is actually more demanding and so that uh, when we speak about uh, generosity i would say that it's it's directly connected to the same quality of renunciation because you're renouncing self-concern you're renouncing self-interest you're renouncing that um, the possessiveness, and then when that is genuinely let go of, genuinely relinquished, then the natural responsiveness of the heart is to share whatever resources that we have. So these are a few reflections. I see the clock has moved around to three already, so I'll leave it there for now. Anyone? So we can have a, uh, speaking of sharing, there's all kinds of... Uh, uh, Empty cups waiting for tea to come into them on the on the servery there, so we can have a tea break now for about twenty minutes, and then at three twenty gather back for some uh, conversation questions and discussion.